Father, thank you for this morning. We're grateful for this day. We thank you for this community, this church, this great place that we live. We're very thankful, Lord, for all the things that are in front of us that we just heard from Sarah. And for each person in this room, as we say here, every single person here matters deeply to you, deeply to us, and I pray that that would be known in this place. God, we're after a, a church, a community. We're building a transformational community that is growing in love with Christ and all people. And we pray, God, that we would experience even a little hint of transformation this morning as we enter into the scriptures we invite you to teach us, God. We say that we have many things going on in our lives that we brought in here to church today. Many of us are wrestling with all kinds of challenges. But right now, we want to hear from your word. Right now, we want to learn from your spirit. And God, we're inviting you to be front and center for us. Please teach us. We don't need another talk from Adrian, Lord knows. We need your spirit. So we ask that you do something in each of us today. We trust ourselves to you, God. We love you. And we say we invite you to teach us even now. Through Christ our Savior we ask. Amen. Amen. So, you've been faithfully leading for some 40 years. And as it's now time to enter into that long-awaited promised land, you are ready to take a bow into retirement. You're ready for a sunset and to humbly enter into this land of palm trees as you've been a faithful second in command for 40 years. You've been the lieutenant general Second in command, leading 600,000 fighting men, following a very faithful leader across every step as that general has been guiding these 600,000 fighting men and up to 2 million people with them into the promised land. And now it's time for you to take a bow into retirement and enjoy as much milk, honey, falafels, and filet mignon as possible. You're excited for this next stage of your journey, and you assume the general of the army will continue to lead as he's done so faithfully for these past 40 years, but he's getting a little bit long in the tooth as well. In fact, he's a cool 100 right now, a little bit more than that, in fact. Moses is over 100 years old now as they enter into the promised land, but you assume he'll be leading the people just as he has over these past 40 years, and maybe if he's not strong enough for the armies on the other side, then God will, of course, select some other younger lieutenant to lead the way into this land of milk and honey. That's the context of our story this morning. Moses takes this young buck, 82, 83, 84 years old, named Joshua, under his wing, and then he dies. And Joshua learns that though he's in his 80s, he will be leading the people of Israel into their long-awaited destination. And at the end of Deuteronomy and in Numbers, you see God giving instruction to Joshua through the mouth of Moses 
telling him, be strong and courageous, building him up just as Joshua had built up Moses over the previous years. But then Moses dies and Joshua is elected to bring this army of 600,000 across the Jordan River and into the promised land again at age 82 or 83. Can you believe it? So much for retiring to the hills. You know, it reminds me that God's never done in leadership with us. Retirement's kind of a human construct, and it's okay. But God will continue to use you wherever you are, no matter how old you are. Did you know that? Some of our very best leaders here at Carney E. Free are over 70 or 75, even over 80 years old. Some of the wisest sages that we have in this room that I regularly go to to get questions answered and to help get things done. Some of our very best prayer partners who are so incredibly faithful with that vital work. God will continue to use us no matter how old we may be. Isn't that wonderful? There's two vital lessons that I hope you get Two vital lessons, though, that I hope you get from the book of Joshua, though, this morning. As with our other messages in this series, we won't be able to get to all of Joshua. We won't be able to get through all of the lessons here. But as we look at the book of Joshua and a couple key lessons on this one Sunday, here are two vital ideas that I hope you're able to take with you as you leave here in about 45 minutes. Unwavering courage requires unwavering faith. We'll see that with Joshua's life. Unwavering courage requires unwavering faith. And the second key idea that we'll see when we jump over to Joshua chapter 6 is this. God's holiness demands our wholeness. God's holiness demands our wholeness and unwavering courage requires unwavering faith. Let's pick up the story here in Joshua chapter 1. If you're turning there in your Bible, you'll find it right after the book of Deuteronomy. You have the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. They're called the Torah or the Pentateuch. And then you have the book of Joshua. And this is the next section of the scriptures, the, this one written by Joshua, as he is now the next leader, second in command, becomes the general, leading Israel into their promised land. You'll see these verses on the screen as well, but I'll be reading from Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord, and, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river the Euphrates all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you, Joshua. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful." 
Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Isn't that a great message? This repeated emphasis that you see again and again. Be strong and very courageous. Four different times it says be strong and courageous. And three different times it gives us why. God says to Joshua, you can be strong and courageous because I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. Unwavering courage requires unwavering faith. Up on the screen here, you'll see a photograph of the Jordan River. I had the pleasure of going to Israel a few years ago and baptizing a number of folks that I was traveling with there. But you're looking at the Jordan River from the west side to the east side. Is that right? No, I guess that would be the east side to the west side. And that little bar at the bottom to the other side, that's the complete Jordan River. We tend to think of it as this raging river like the Nile or the Mississippi. It isn't that. It's a smaller river. Back then it would have been much larger than this because it's had a number of tributaries cut off from it. So it doesn't rage as wildly as it did back then. But it's not a large river. Even so, Joshua's command is to take 600,000 fighting men and eventually 2 million people along with their cattle across this river as God does here at the Jordan River, the same thing as he did at the Red Sea. He stops the river so they could pass. It would take them a number of days to go across and then once they get at the other side, they have waiting for them a number of armies from the Jerichites and the Gibeonites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and on and on throughout the land. I wonder, do you have any battles that you are facing today that you know are looming on the horizon on the other side of the river? Anyone? Do you have any raging rivers that are coming towards you today? Anyone? Okay, to you, if you're in that spot, God says repeatedly, be strong and be very courageous, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I don't know about you, I find this incredibly encouraging that we have this repeated emphasis. We have this repeated emphasis in the scriptures, be strong and very courageous, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I find that so very encouraging to me because the truth is, when I go to bed after a long day of challenging meetings or after a Sunday afternoon and I'm not in front of all of you, sometimes the air of confidence that I am supposed to hold as a leader is stripped from me and I start to wrestle with some fears. Anyone else? Like when no one's watching and you're alone in your room. And you get really quiet and you can't sleep. Do you start to wrestle with some fears? For me, in the quietness of those moments, I sometimes begin to ask, do I really have what it takes to lead this church? This great assembly? I'm not so sure at times. Or I start to ask, do I have what it takes to, to lead this meeting that I've had circled on the, count, on the calendar for a full month? And it's coming tomorrow, and I'm still not quite prepared in my heart. 
Or I look at my two wonderful boys, Elijah and Silas, and I, I realize that perhaps job one for me as a human being here on this earth is to give them an example and to teach them what it is to be a strong Christian, sacrificial leader, a godly man who paints a different portrait for those who are watching them, and I wonder, do I have what it takes? And sometimes I'm not sure to which I receive this message and say, thank you, God, that you promised to be with me no matter where I go. I tell you, in dozens of men's small groups that I've led over the years, and dozens of men's discipleship gatherings that I've led over the years, I've noticed that the number one most crippling thing for most of our fathers and husbands is not lust or greed or even anger. It's fear. It's fear. It's this haunting question that we sometimes wrestle with late at night, and I'm sure women struggle with it as well, but I can only speak for men right now. This haunting fear that we struggle with late at night that I'm not sure if I have what it takes for this job. My dad really didn't affirm me much. I'm not sure if I really measure up to his standards. I'm not sure if I have what it takes to confront this issue in my life or to confront this relationship that has gone awry. I'm struggling with with this. Whatever this is in your life, I'm struggling with this. And I want to bring another man into my life and ask him for help, ask him for prayer, ask him for his advice, but I'm scared. Will I be rejected by him if I admit to this struggle? Anyone tracking with me in here? These are the common fears that when we're honest, we struggle with. I got to believe that Joshua was rightfully fearful as he followed Moses' steps and he enters into this promised land and he sees all these warring tribes on the horizon. And sometimes what God does when we're scared, sometimes what God does when we're experiences, experiencing fear is he, he speaks to us directly as God does to Joshua in this episode But more often what God does is he uses another man or woman in our life whose words happen to be strong, happen to be weighty for us. And he speaks into our lives through that person. And God did that through Moses for Joshua at the end of Deuteronomy as well. I was asking a number of uh, staff members this past week, uh, in your life, where have people spoken into to you? And how has it made a difference for you? And I want to share just one that I heard from Jordan Heinrichsen, our awesome youth director for our middle school and high school ministries here. And he is such a fantastic middle school and high school leader. I'm telling you, if your middle school and high school kids don't yet have a youth group, encourage them to come on Wednesday evening because he's helping these kids find their identity in Christ. And it's so very powerful. He also leads over in our venue. But I asked Jordan this question and he said this. I firmly believe that I am here today because Kevin Andrews spoke into my life. I didn't see myself as a leader or someone that other people would follow. But Kevin said, Jordan, did you know that you are a leader? I see you as a leader that others will follow. You have those abilities even if you do not see them in yourself. That was the very first time, Jordan said, the very first time Someone outside of my family said they believed in me. 
And if it were not for those words, he reported, I wouldn't be here today. Okay. That's called giving someone else courage. Isn't it interesting? The root word of encourage is courage. You want to be a difference maker, give other people courage by using your voice in their life to build into them. Your words matter so much. Your words hold weight for somebody. Let me say that again. Your words hold weight for somebody. Do you believe that? Husbands and wives, your words hold weight. Mothers and fathers, your words hold weight. Mentors and coaches and teachers, your words hold incredible weight for somebody. I think of Glenn and Nancy Epley who've been leading our divorce care ministries here at this church for 15 consecutive years, 30 consecutive semesters. They've spoken into the lives of people going through the river of suffering called divorce in which they look them in the eyes and they share God's truth with those people and they say, God is not done with you. I believe in you. God can help you get through this and I am for you. Those are courageous words that build us up when we're weak. Who is it for you? Who can you speak into and give courage where they may be lacking? This is exactly what Moses did for Joshua. And then after Moses died and Joshua is now about to take the Israelites across the Jordan River, God does it again directly for Joshua and he speaks these words to him. He whispers to him, be strong and be very courageous. As I was with Moses, I promise I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Just hold on to these words that I'm giving to you. Meditate on them day and night, Joshua. You will be tempted to wake up in the morning and meditate on Facebook, Joshua. Don't do it. Meditate on the words of the Lord our God. You'll be tempted, Joshua, to do some binge watching in the evening and click Netflix yet again. Joshua, don't do it. Meditate on these words of my law again, day and night, and be careful to obey, be careful to do everything that is written in them. Then, Joshua, I promise you will be prosperous and successful, and I will fight for you. Friends, it's really hard to be courageous when you don't have the unchanging foundation of the Word of God buried in your heart and your mind. But when your lives are rooted on the rock of God's unchanging Word, in the midst of a culture that is going awry and is constantly changing, when your lives are rooted on the fact that your identity is in Christ and what he's done for you on the cross, when your life is rooted in the fact that your eternity is secure in heaven, that God has his hand all over your life and he will never leave you or forsake you and he will finish the work that he's begun in you 
and he will bring you to eternity. When your life is rooted on all of those things, you have a lot of courage. You know that you will go through a wilderness time. We'll all go through wilderness times. You know you'll go through an exodus. We all, Christian or not, go through exoduses of different kinds. You know you are longing for a promised land. That's true for Christians and non-Christians, all of us. But the difference is this. Those who follow Christ know that he has the power to get us there. And he will get us there. The one who called you is faithful and he will do it. Unwavering courage comes from unwavering faith in God's unchanging word and his unchanging character. I pray that you believe that today. And then second, what we get out of this passage, first, unwavering courage comes from unwavering faith, and second, God's holiness demands our wholeness. God's holiness demands our wholeness. And to get this, we need to go over to Joshua chapter 6. Turn there with me right now, Joshua 6, and we're going to read a number of verses here, starting at verse 1. Here they are now on the other side of the Jordan River. They've already passed, and they're looking at the city, the fortress city of Jericho, as they're about to engage in their first battle. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out, and no one came in. Then the Lord God said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Common army tactics, right? For anyone in the army? No, not so much, okay. That's because God is doing this, not the people. This is a fortress city. It's a small fortress city, and they circle around it seven times. Hold that in your mind. Fortress city, military complex. Verse 15 now. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. This great act of faith by Rahab back in chapter 4. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword everything, every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle and sheep and donkeys. What do you do with that? Let me just say here, this is one of the hardest passages in the Bible. 
And it's repeated a couple times in the book of Joshua. And this is one of the reasons that many of us skip over the book of Joshua. It's one of the reasons that many people you know choose not to read the Old Testament at all. It's one of the reasons a group called the New Atheists have kind of risen to prominence and it's part of their bullseye when they frequently make attacks against religion. And what I'm going to do right now is speak to it. I'm going to practice what I just preached. I'm going to try to practice courage and not skip over these passages as we are wont to do and speak to what is going on in this passage and some of the surrounding sociological and cultural issues that we need to understand if we're to understand what's happening in the conquest story. Several years ago, a friend of mine back at the church that I used to serve in Colorado came to me, and he was asking a number of different questions. He had been away from the church for about 30 years. And now at age 50, he was considering coming back into the church, and again, he was asking all different kinds of questions about how can you say Jesus is the only way to God? And why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? And what about all these other religions? You know, all of those easy questions? Those are the questions he was asking me. So I was trying to give him adequate answers, and as I was doing so, he began to read the book of Joshua. And as he read the book of Joshua, confusion set in, and he wrote this email. Let me share with you just a snippet. Well, that's fine and good, Steve wrote, that God loves Israel. But what about all the people in Canaan? Yes, they were idolatrous, but for that sin, they're just going to be wiped out? If so, I'm not sure that this is a God-worthy of my devotion. Okay, my conviction is that what we just saying about is true. You are good. You are good. You are good. And so we have to answer this question. And so if you're one to take notes, this is now a good time to take notes. Because if you have kids who are inquisitive as I do, and you want your kids to read the Bible as I do, guess what? Someday they're going to ask. And this is not a question that's just asked by skeptics or by religious seekers. This is a question that's asked by people in the church. And we have to be able to speak to it. The, the key word in these conquest stories is the Hebrew word harem, from which we get devoted. So you look at verse 21 in your Bible, it says, they devoted the city to the Lord. They haremed the city to the Lord. It wasn't simply that God had for Israel to go and destroy Jericho. It was that Jericho would be devoted as land to the Lord. They would be set apart for his unique use. It would be distinct, and it would be different, and it would be devoted to God, not for ordinary use. And as God devotes this city and a couple other cities to the Lord, here are six lines of cultural detail, cultural facts, important details about the conquest narrative that helps us understand what God is doing in this story, even as we seek to preserve our understanding of the character of God. Here's number one on the screen. These are fortress cities, okay? They're not cities like Kearney or Omaha. They're fortress cities. Think Fort Irwin, only much, much smaller. They march around them seven times. There's gates around the cities. These are not unarmed, non-combatants. These are armies, and with them, their families, 
who together are living in these fortress cities and ready to make war on the Israelites. Second, and importantly, God desires mercy for all people. And so as you read this story, who was the one person who was spared? Rahab. And who was Rahab? She was a prostitute. And she was apparently the most righteous person in all of this fortress city of Jericho, even though she was a prostitute. And she has faith in God as he is revealed to her in this moment. And she and her entire family are spared because they chose to devote themselves to the Lord. This is what God is after, devotion. So they have a very small embryonic faith at this point, but they trust in God as he is. They devote themselves to to him as he is, and he has mercy on them. Likewise, as the stories go on in the book of Joshua, you see these treaties. The Israelites make a treaty with the Gibeonites, for, for example. All of this is for the purpose of pursuing mercy. Number three, these are Amorite and Canaanite peoples, and the Amorites and the Canaanites had wickedness that was unsurpassed even by Las Vegas or Amsterdam or fill in the blank whatever you would use. I mean, the wickedness of the Amorites and the Canaanites, and these are umbrella names for all the other tribes underneath them in the land of Canaan, was unsurpassed in the world of the day. In addition to carving these grotesque gods and goddesses out of wood and stone and bowing their knees in worship to them, they practiced rampant promiscuity and child prostitution and child sacrifice I'm not kidding. Child sacrifice and chattel slavery. These were the cultures that Israel was entering into. And what God decided to do was to make a covenant with the people that they would be a different kind of people than all of the other nations that would surround them. God's covenant called for something different from the Israelites. And you remember, if you've been with us over the past couple months, we've talked about the key idea in this covenant again and again is that God promises to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And out of your family, I will make a nation, and that nation will be a blessing to other nations. And how will it be a blessing? Because it's different. Because it's holy. Because it's a people who live by the Ten Commandments, a people who live up to God's holy standards, a people who act with integrity, a people who honor the sanctity of marriage, a people who honor and love and bless their children, a people that is different. And God said that if we are to be different, we need to be holy. And once holy, we can be different And once different, we can be a counter-cultural influence for good. And that's what God desired for Israel, and that's what God desires for the church. That you and I would be a counter-cultural influence for good. That we would be set apart by our devotion. That we would be set apart by our holiness. That we would be set apart by our purity that we would be set apart by our faithfulness, that we would be set apart by our love. This has always been what God is about. But this land was so wicked and these people were so wicked that God said, 
I need to drive them out in order to create a unique people and out of that people to make a nation that would be a blessing to others. Now, God was patient. you got to know, God was very patient with the Canaanites and the Jerichites and all the rest. But his patience doesn't last forever. Not for them and not for us. Please hear me. God is patient, but not forever. He waited for them for 400 years. If you know your Bible, you might be familiar with this passage out of Genesis 15, 16. In the fourth generation, God says to Abraham, Abraham, you don't get this land for yourself. You get to live in it right now, but you don't get to own it. Your family will come back to this land in the fourth generation. That means four centuries later. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, Abraham. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its, its full measure. It's bad right now, Abraham, but it's not overflowing. And one day, the sin of the Amorites and the Canaanites will be so bad that it's overflowing, and they will be irretrievably lost. Their consciences will be seared, and they will not be, even be able to be redeemed. And in that moment, I'm going to give you this land. Have you ever met someone whose conscience has been seared? Yes? <laughs> it's a scary thing. There comes a point when we choose not to repent for long enough that something changes in us and our conscience is seared and all of a sudden we cannot repent any longer. That's a dire warning. And that's what happened with the Amorites and the Canaanites. They chose not to repent for 400 years. And God says, now they cannot repent any longer. And I'm giving you this land, Israel. Uh, friends, this isn't folks looking across the river from Omaha into Iowa saying, oh, that's a good land. I want that land. There's a bunch of innocents over on the other side of the river. I'm going to go kill them and take their land from them. No, this is looking across the river and seeing ISIS. And God's saying, I'm driving them out. And I'm going to create from you a different kind of people. It's still a difficult passage. But culturally and historically and sociologically and theologically, if you understand all that I just noted, it starts to make a whole lot more sense. And especially so when you understand that there is no double standard here. That what God expected of his people is the same thing he expected of these foreigners. There's no double standard. And so also Jesus, what does Jesus say to us is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. All your soul. All your mind. All your strength. All your wallet. All your sexuality. All your anger. Love the Lord with all you got. This is, this is God's standard. He will, he will not have cafeteria Christians. He won't have it. He wants people who are all in. God's holiness demands our wholeness. Now, even so, you've got to understand that as you move into the New Testament, there's one other principle that we have to note here. In the New Testament, the kingdom of Jesus, our response to enemies is love and prayer. Love and prayer. So these were one-time acts during the conquest story 
is God needed to create a separate people that would be different from all the surrounding nations to use them to bless other nations. But the response from us to those who would oppose us today is our battle is not against flesh and blood, is it? It's against the, the powers and principalities of the heavenly realms. It's against the enemy of our souls, not against flesh and blood. Our response to those who would oppose us is love those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Be kind to those who mistreat you. Go the second mile for those who would oppose you. Because that becomes a city on the hill. That becomes a light for the world. That becomes the salt of the earth for people to say, hmm, how tasty is that church? I want some of what they have. Uh, friends, I, I just want to encourage you. Don't expect people who are not Christians to agree with you. D don't expect them to be sympathetic to you. Don't expect them to be kind to you. Don't expect them to reciprocate love to you. They're not Christians. They have a different worldview. Our job is to be leaders no matter what they do. Can I get an amen? Our job is to be leaders, to go the second mile for people, no matter what they do. That's the church. Difference makers for time and for eternity. And so I just got to ask myself the question, I just got to ask you this one question as I wrap up here today. What is one area of your life that God has shown exceeding patience to you across many, many years and you've been holding on to nonetheless? And you say, I'm going to hold on to this part, God. I'll give you the rest, but I'm not going to give you this part. And I've had to ask myself that question over the past couple weeks as I've been meditating on this message. What's one area of my life, and there is one. There's an area of my life that I've been holding on to control. And I've heard God whispering to me, Adrian, will you give me that too? Because God's patience, his long-suffering is great. But there is a law of natural consequences that his patience will not last forever if I only give him part of who I am. I don't know where you are with Christ today, but if you haven't given yourself to Christ, his patience won't last forever. And if you're holding on to part for yourself today, give yourself wholly to God. His patience does not last forever. Just imagine with me a church in which everyone said, I'm not going to hold on to part for myself. I'm going to give 100% to God. I'm going to be fully devoted to God. Just imagine that church. That would be a church where we would see pride turn into humility. The defensive spirit that so frequently permeates marriages would turn into a listening spirit. The tendency we have to dishonor women would turn into honoring women. Anger would turn into gentleness. Greed and covetousness would turn into sacrificial giving and generosity. The world would see a city on a hill. But to get there, 
God's holiness demands our wholeness. Are you with me? I don't know about you. I say to God, bring it on. That's what I want. That's what I want for this church. That's what I want for this community. That's what I want for this state. That's what I want for this nation. That's what I want for this world. So God, bring it on. If you're with me, would you stand here? I'm going to invite the worship team forward. We're going to close with this beautiful, resolute statement from Joshua to the Israelites. Maybe you'd say it with me to God. Great, great statement as you close out the book of Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you believe that, would you say it with me? Let's all say it together, and then we'll sing to our great God. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, you believe that? God, we just say to you, we're going all for you. We're going all for you. I say to you, for the Boykin family, I'm going all for you. As for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm not going to hold back, God. You've convicted me of my areas of sin and control, and I thank you. I repent of it, God. I admit to you that I hold on to this little area of my life, and I'm sorry. Anyone else? Anyone else? Father, we're sorry. We ask for your forgiveness. We say to you, we give ourselves to you in full. You've given your all to us through Jesus Christ, the only proper, rational, appropriate, loving response is to give ourselves back to God. So have your way in us, God. Have your way in us. May it be in Jesus' name.